Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Henri Pierre-Jacques, managing partner at Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a venture capital firm on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in a thousand diverse founders over 20 years. Some of their investments include Ontflow, Blavity, and Repeat. You'll learn how Henri thinks about impact and opportunity in the early stages of investing, Harlem's thesis, and why Harlem wants to be a multi-stage investment firm. Without further ado, here's Henri. Henri, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good. Can't complain. So I want to talk a little bit about your early career. What attracted you, I guess, to private equity first? And why did you want to transition into VC? Yes, I did investment banking first um, out of college at Bank of America. Pretty typical to go investment banking to private equity. (laughs) So literally got my private equity job probably six months into investment banking. I think part of it was obviously you follow the herd, which is where people are going. But part of it also was I could already see early on in those six months in banking that like I didn't like being on the advisory side of like selling businesses. I actually wanted to buy them and then add value and see them you know, exit. Once I got into private equity, we started angel investing pretty like three months after starting private equity. Me and Jared, who was actually my cube mate at the same private equity firm, and a number of our other friends started angel investing into startups, small businesses, and real estate. Kind of just because like we loved investing. We were all making good money in our 20s. And we're like, hey, why don't we do what we're doing at work for ourselves? So that's kind of like how we started getting into angel investing. That's really where the whole startup VC thing came about. We weren't really looking for it. It was just if you're a 25-year-old writing 25K checks, there's only so many asset classes you could probably invest in. And Venture is one of the ones where a founder will actually take your money, listen to you, add value, send you information rights. Versus if we're doing 25K checks, you can't really get in any PE funds. You can't do private equity deals. So I think kind of it was like where we were in our stage of life and how much money we had naturally leaned us towards doing more startup investments in our syndicate. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit, actually, one of my first episodes when I talked to Nicole Quinn, who I think had kind of a similar path in that she was an equity a- uh, analyst and then um, started angel investing. But her main focus and why she wanted to eventually join a fund was really for impact. You can't, you know, a 25K check is fantastic, but she's like, okay, how can I have more impact on these companies? Maybe take a board seat or just be a lot more involved than, than I could, right? So uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So why did you choose to start your own fund instead of joining a fund? Yes. I mean, we had been angel investing for two and a half years. We went to Harvard Business School. Jerry and I were roommates. Started recruiting at firms first year, uh, which was 2017 fall. And coming, I think one, we worked at a Black-owned private equity firm called ICB Partners. So coming from a Black-owned private equity firm, plus most of our deals in the angel syndicate were to diverse founders because that's who that's where we wanted to invest our money. And so I was pretty intentional about that from a recruiting perspective. And so when I just looked at all the like big fun names, um, the Andreessen and Secords of the world, there were no black partners, which I didn't like. I wasn't going to go from a black owned firm to no black partners. 
And when I looked at like who was investing in diverse founders, similar to our angel syndicate, you know, at the time, this is four years ago, like most funds, either impact focused funds or diverse run funds were small, right? Like Charles Hudson was a $15 million fund, 645 was an $8 million fund. Like there weren't, like nobody had raised $100 million plus funds. And so the reality was, is like they couldn't hire a, a senior associate principal from Harvard Business School, right? And so I think once like the realization came to like, okay, do I want to work for people of color? Yes. Do I want to invest in people of color? Yes. Well, there's no other options <laughs> but to start our own fund. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that unfortunately makes sense. Because I mean, as you say, there just wasn't funds that were run by people of color. So you didn't have that opportunity to actually work in that capacity. So you had to launch your own fund, right? So and then talk a little bit. Um, I know Jared obviously is your co-founder. Talk a little bit about like the origin story of Harlem Capital. I understand the reason why. But what were like those early innings when you were maybe pitching to institutionals um, and actually launching your own fund? Yeah, so Jerry and I have known each other for a decade. Since 2011, we met in a diversity program called MLT, which is like a national diverse program. Uh, we were at separate colleges. I was at Northwestern. He was at Warden. So we met our sophomore year in college. We were all recruiting. Eventually, we both ended up working at the same firm, work, living together in business school. And so like, we've like socially, professionally, all of our life has been intertwined. And so really, it was a pretty easy transition for us. Like, I think, you know, that's the first key risk for a first time fund is like, do you think the management team will be together for a decade, 20 years? I think because like we've opened each other's weddings, we've lived together, we've worked together. That gave a lot of LPs a lot of confidence. Like, hey, there's a lot less team risk here. Now the assessment is like, do we believe in the market? And do we believe that this is the best team? To invest in that market, right? And so that that's like ultimately what we had to prove was like, why do we think this market exists? And so like we started doing our diverse founder reports, which is where we track Black and Latino founders who've raised a million dollars because like there was no data. Crunchbase and PitchBook didn't track by race. Crunchbase started last summer, and then we had to prove like, hey, do we have flow? And you know, before we raised the fund, you know, the year before we raised the fund, 2016, we saw probably 350 deals. Like this was working in private equity, starting to like do a side hustle, 8 p.m. to midnight. And so like ultimately we were trying to prove to people like, hey, like we're pretty confident if we do this full time, like our flow will increase. And like we're seeing good deals. We got into like good companies like Blavity, Beauty Bakery, et cetera. So that's what we were really trying to prove was like, hey, based on what we did in the Angel Syndicate, just imagine what we can do if we did this full time and we had more capital. How do you describe Harlem Capital's focus area? Yeah, I mean, we're mission driven. We're not an impact fund, but we're a VC fund with impact. And so the mission is what drives us. Like our focus, we fundamentally exist to invest in diverse and women founders. Now, from like an industry vertical perspective, like we still remain agnostic, but there are definitely areas that we like more, whether that's e-commerce, enterprise software, fintech, wellness, prop tech, crypto, et cetera. Like we're beginning to like, one thing that we had to figure out is like, okay, we have a mission, but like where do diverse founders exist? Like nobody actually knew this. There was always this pipeline problem. Nobody actually knew what the pipeline looked like, right? And so part of like us doing our research reports and investing is like, let's figure out where are their deep concentrations, where if we were to say, hey, you know, we're going to have five verticals, then like these verticals actually work because we're actually finding VC backable founders in these verticals. And like four years ago, like nobody could really answer that question. It was kind of just like, there are no women aren't getting funded or black founders aren't getting funded. But like, I don't know what states they're in. I don't know what states they're at. I don't know what industries they're in. And so like part of it for us was like, let's figure out where are they like geographically located? Are there enough at the seed stage? And like what industries are they focused in? And over time, you know, we've seen probably four or 5,000 deals at this point. Like we're beginning to understand that at a really deep level. And then we can begin to like focus more and more on like where do we see big pockets of diverse founders existing? What advice do you have maybe for, for other funds that 
maybe you want to invest in more diverse founders, but maybe just don't really maybe know diverse founders. Like what are some like pipes that they could start building themselves in order to actually increase and actually to get more diverse founders venture backed? Yeah, I mean, I think first you have to have diverse investors. Like diverse founders don't want to work with non-diverse funds. Obviously the big brand names, uh, people will still work with you because they want to have the big brand names. But like there's only certain tier ones, right? 1%, 2% of funds are like what I would say like true tier ones. And so I think like if you're not like one of those like brand name funds where founders know you kind of before they even meet you, like having diverse investors helps a lot because people want to feel comfortable and they want to actually believe that you believe in diversity. I think one thing we've also seen in the post-George Floyd era, like we have several funds who are LPs in our funds, like either through their partners or they've created entities where they've invested in us, whether that's Alpaca or a number of brothers who, who haven't publicly disclosed yet. Like a number of non-diverse funds are realizing like, hey, like let's just like invest in diverse managers and build those relationships, join their annual meetings, see their portfolio, um, share some of our learnings and build that relationship. And that's been really great for us. Like we use them for references. Some of them have led some of our Series A for our companies. We talk to them about like, hey, like what are you, you know, how are you building your platform? You've been around for a decade. So we get a lot of insights from them. And we also share a lot of our like insights with them. Like, hey, this is what we're seeing on the ground. Uh, this is how you should adapt. And so, you know, that's one thing that we've really seen a lot of funds are beginning to invest in other funds. I mean, it's a less like competitive environment. It's more about like, hey, we just want to like build together. And we realize like this is a, a flaw for us, an area of weakness, and we think you're good at it, and we want to learn from you. And I think that's worked really well for a lot of the funds that have invested in our fund, and similar for other funds I know who've invested in, in other funds. That's really interesting. And also, you know, in this post George Floyd era, I'd also love to understand as well your thoughts of behind the scenes and how maybe our institutions uh, changing their decisions and being more thoughtful around investing in investors that are diverse, maybe um, are Black or Latinx or women or other minorities. Do you see change actually happening as an investor in your conversations? Because I mean, like when I talked to Soraya Darabi last year, we also talked about how if you really want to see change in venture capital along these lines, it really has to start from the top. You really have to then invest. So I'd love to kind of just hear your thoughts on that. You also have a really good memory on your episodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's probably been the biggest change. We're actually doing an analysis on this this month, but I would say the change has happened faster for LPs investing in GPs versus VCs investing in diverse founders. I mean, whether you think about like corporations from B of A, PayPal, Apple, Foot Locker, I mean, there's just there's dozens of corporations who've deployed hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into diverse GPs. I just got off the phone with somebody who's announcing their $60 million fund next week, who I know has been raising for a while. Right. And it's like there's a number of GPs now, even like just this year, the number of black funds that are hundred million dollar plus. I mean, it's just unparalleled between us and and Mac and Base 10 and Carmichael Roberts. There's a ton of us. And that like that didn't exist when I was in business school. Like there was one or two maybe that were 100 million plus. And so I think you're, you're seeing it pretty dramatically. I mean, I think the key question becomes like, is it sustainable, right? So like, do do the corporations or do the institutional LPs who created these side vehicles like continue to re-up, right? It's not their core business. It's not PayPal's core business to do this. And so, you know, and just given the magnitude, the number of funds that you're seeing get back, like it's obvious, or I would think that like for most of these corporations, like they're not going to be able to re-up in 20, 30, 40, 50 funds, right? Like you have to like kind of skim the funnel and figure out, hey, we, we did 50 first investments, we're going to re-up in 10 of you, and this will kind of like continue ongoing. I think next year and the year after will probably tell a lot, but I do think like the last year 
there has been hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars put into GPs of color, which is really meaningful for a lot of these GPs to start out. Now the question is like, when you go to raise fund two, you go to raise fund three, like how big of a hole do you have to fill in order to get back to where you were in fund one? What are some of the biggest maybe misconceptions around investing in, in just emerging managers in general? I think that now we're starting to see as well. I know there's like Slack groups and a lot of like communities for emerging managers, but I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts about maybe some of the biggest misconceptions that that you found. Yeah, I mean, I think the risk profile that people have, I think, I think they think it's a much higher risk profile than it is. I think the numbers have shown fund one and fund twos outperform future funds. Now, like what matters is like that's on a relative MOIC basis, but like ultimately LPs care about dollars, not MOIC. Right. And so I think that's like part of the discussion is like if you're only raising 20, 30 million dollar fund, like do I care that you make me a 5X on $3 million? Probably not for most institutional LPs. I think that people, I don't know if it's an assumption for emerging managers, I think people overestimate how institutionalized and less risky non-emerging managers are. I think people would be surprised that like funds that are on fund four, fund five are just like building platforms, creating like secure drives, right? Like have like security systems to prevent phishing or hacking of their like financial statements. So I think a lot of people would assume that like a fund three, fund four, like you're you're safer, you've built more things out than, than a fund one, fund two. I just don't think that's actually the case from what I've spoken to people, particularly based on when you started in venture. Because venture 10, 15 years ago like, was not, an ins- like, not nearly as institutionalized as it is today. And so I think you've just seen a lot more early funds like, become much more institutionalized as billion, $100 billion plus are getting invested into the space. And so I think that's changing. I, I was personally surprised at like, how early some of these like later stage funds were or like more developed funds where I was like, wow, you guys haven't done that yet? You've been around for a decade. <laughs> like, and so I think that gap between a fund one and a fund four is actually a lot smaller than people think. Got it. Going back to, I guess, what you, what you first said, why do you think fund one and fund two tend to outperform the rest of the funds? Well, I think one, on an absolute basis, you're smaller. It's easier to return smaller dollars. I think two... Because you're smaller and because you're earlier, like you might, you know, I don't know if it's proven, but you might be more risk, like risk tolerant, right? And I think because you can do the quarter million dollar check for like 2% ownership into a hot deal and not have to care about ownership constraints or lead the deal or fight against other funds, you kind of can just like throw money into some of the best performing companies. Because if you have a $10 million fund, like ownership doesn't really matter, right? And so I think part of it is like you just have a different fund model. But like once you start raising, hundred million billion dollar funds, your fund math changes, you can't do small checks into great founders for most funds. And then like your, you know, your capital, who's providing your capital profile changes. Like an LP and a $10 million fund is very different than an LP and a hundred million dollar fund. And what they expect is going to be different. And a lot of these institutional LPs have like models that they expect. Like they want you to hit certain ownership targets. They want you to do certain parata. They want you to do certain reserve rights. They're like, you're just not going to have those requirements as a first time sub $20 million fund for most LPs. It's kind of like, I'm backing you, I trust you, do what you want and keep me updated. Do you think when you go and raise fund three, fund four, fund five, you're going to stay at the same similar size or do you want to raise more and more and more? Raise more. <laughs> raise more, okay, okay. And why? Just, just I'm just curious because I've also had funds on the show that actually don't want to raise more than they do and they want to stay within like, some funds are like at 60 million and they don't want to go beyond 60 million, for example. Founder Collective, 75 million, you know, USV, first round. 
I do think, and the data has proven this, we have, we have a couple of fund to funds. If you are a pure seed stage fund, not multi-stage like Andreessen, you happen to invest in seed, but pure seed stage fund, it's really hard to return four to five extra fund once you kind of break this two to $250 million range. Like there's a pretty significant drop. And if you look at any fund to funds like data, you'll see this drop significantly drop off once funds hit that size from like an MYC perspective. So like, it's really hard. And a few people have done it like Bessemer and Tiger and others, but like, it's really hard. And so I think from like, if you're going to be, if you really do like, Hey, I want to be on the ground. I want to be pure seed. I do think you have a cap of like this two to $300 million range. Now, if you're okay being a multi-stage firm where you pretty much in today's market have to still invest seed, it's harder to win Series A deals now if you don't have any exposure to seed stage, right? And that's just the reality of where the market is. And so I think even if you're a multi-stage fund, you're going to have to have some pool of capital dedicated to seed stage deals. And long-term, like that's like where we want to be, right? Like our first one was $40 million, Our second fund was $134 million. Like we, we want to continue at that pacing. I think one, because like it gives you more leverage from a market perspective. You, you've got to write bigger checks in this competitive market. I think two, like if we look at our portfolio and our companies, five years ago, like diverse founders weren't raising capital at scale. And if we and a number of other diversity-focused funds or diverse managers helped to create that market, you know, my personal view is like, why would you not capture that alpha? Like if, if my companies go on to raise Series B, go to IPO, get acquired by private equity funds, like, yes, I've captured a value at the seed stage, but like, why would I not like have a growth equity fund? Why would I not do venture debt? Why would I not have a pre-IPO fund? Obviously, it takes time to get there. So like, we have to obviously build the pipeline. Like, part of the reason we went from private equity to venture capital was we knew we couldn't be a diversity-focused private equity fund. There weren't enough 10 million, 20 million EBITDA businesses of diverse manager, founders at the time. Like Eventually, in 10, 15 years, if we can create that, then yeah, I would love to have like also a diversity-focused private equity fund. But like, today, you couldn't do that. There's not enough of a pipeline. But like in 10, 15 years, if our companies are getting PE backed and, and acquired, and like we help to create that market, you know, my personal view is like you're leaving money on the table. No, that makes a lot of sense because as you say, you're building a market since there is so few funds that are backing diverse founders, right? So since you are actually building that market and there really isn't like a ton of competition, unfortunately, that it makes sense that you want to capture uh, going all the way, maybe into like, the private equity side, like capture like the A's, the B's, the C's because there actually isn't that market. Is that roughly correct? So there's enough people in the market today, like at the later stages for it to be fine. But I think it's like, you kind of want to take that back from the later stage and like capture it yourself. I think of, I forget who tweeted it a while ago, but like, and it's just partially why a lot of funds are changing their time life because, you know, typical fund is a 10-year term life, but people are changing this because if you had exited Google or exited Facebook when you IPO from the seed stage, obviously you made a ton of money, but like you've lost a ton of value post-IPO. I mean, Google and Facebook, these companies are up 4,000, 5,000% post-IPO, like you had your life for your fund and you sold it because you've been holding for 10 years. And so you're seeing the Blackstones, the larger funds of the world say like, hey, like we're losing value by not capturing this. And so I think of it very similarly for early stage or pre-IPO or post-IPO. Like if you believe these are the companies that are going to change the world, even at IPO, you made 100x on Uber or whatever it may be. There's still a ton of more value that like you're not capturing as a GP and for your LPs. And so I think there, like, there's going to be more creative ways to find ways for you to capture more value versus these like we have this timeline. We're only seed stage. We're like, we're really happy with like the unicorn exit. It's like, yes, we're happy with it, but like, why not capture more? I mean, that's a great point. When I had Eric Paley on, he talked about how pro rata is actually not good 
for the entrepreneur that you actually had pro rata rights. I think they invest in C and they'll only exercise it on the A and they don't go up to B. What are your thoughts um, on pro rata? You know, some people have different beliefs. My belief is as much as VC is like, I like the founder market bet, like it's a math game. Like a lot of the best funds, like there's a reason why Bessemer like gets 20 to 25%, right? Even the best founders, like they're flexing slightly now because Tiger and Coates are pushing them down. But like the best funds have stayed pretty strict on like certain ownership hurdles, certain pro rata rights for a reason, because like it is a math game. Like venture is a math game. And so I think once you get to certain fund sizes, a sub hundred million dollar fund has very different constraints than like a $500 million billion fund, right? And so I think you can't have a large multi-hundred million billion dollar fund and not have pro rata do multiple stages. You can't deploy the capital. Like it's impossible, right? And so I think part of it is like, do you give up return? Which I think is the point of like SoftBank's a perfect example. Like SoftBank's hundred million dollar fund supposedly is going to return two to two and a half X, like two to 250 billion. Depending on the LP, whether it's the Saudi Arabia family, like whatever it is, like, do I care about a 5X fund or do I care about two and a half on a hundred billion? Most LPs will take two and a half on a hundred billion over 5X on a hundred million, right? Because you're trying to move capital. I don't care about the return. I care about moving capital. And so like ultimately, if you, as you get larger, you have to be able to deploy capital. And so pro rata rights going through multiple rounds is the only way you can. And so I think it's not a question of like, are my returns suppressed? And like, is this dollar better used at the earlier stages? It's like, no, I already did 5 million at the seed stage and I'm doing a hundred million at the series B. It's not an either or. Right. But for seed stage funds that are sub hundred million, it is an either or. You're trying to get diversification. You have 30 to 45 companies. You want to get 10% ownership. So, yeah, you got to decide like, do I want to go through the B or is that dollar better work at the seed stage? And Dreesen doesn't have to think about that. They can do both. <laughs> right. 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 And since you are a multi stage fund, is it harder because you're placing bets? You're investing in obviously in multi stages and you aren't specializing in, in one single stage, like a founder collective. So we do pro rata in almost all of our deals with Series A. We go to Series B for like our best like five companies. Obviously depends on pricing, but like Series A, we believe like you should do pro rata or C plus because C plus is like everywhere now because the A bar is higher. Fundamentally, I think we do believe like if you lead the seed round from a signaling perspective, from a model perspective, like you should invest in the A unless like the company has fallen off of a cliff, which typically doesn't happen. That's just like a fundamental belief is like we want to be supporters of our founders. And it's kind of a like, we appreciate you letting us lead and be the person to like have the biggest ownership, have the board seat, the seed round. Like we're going to support you, whether it's a C plus bridge round or a series A round, like we're going to support you at least for one more round, if not two, because like we view this as a long-term partnership and relationship, right? And so I think part of it is like, yes, the model and part of it is like, this is a relationship and partnership. And typically, founders give VCs more than VC give founders, right? Like they're sharing all their information. They're letting you do all these reference calls. You're talking to them for hours. And maybe like, you know, we'll give them our deck. We'll do a one hour like launch call. Like this is who we are. They do like maybe one or two founder references. But like founders are giving up a lot more to VCs than VCs are giving to founders. And so part of it is like, hey, as a part of this relationship, like we are going to support you pretty much no matter what in the next round. Right, because like you've you've sacrificed a lot for us to like ha- be on this journey with you. Do you consider yourself more as like an opportunist investor, or more so as like a thematic investor? 
I remember when I had on Paul Martino, which is one of the very early episodes, and I asked him about what are some trends that you're interested in or what are you fascinated by? And he's like, oh, trends. We don't even think about trends. We let the entrepreneur bring us the trend. Like that is, and like understand uh, from that way. And then I've also had investors on that are very thematic, very focused and plugged in into certain trends. So I'd love to just kind of understand a little bit about how you view opportunities and maybe on this line, if you view it as a line, kind of where do you fall? Probably somewhere in the middle, slightly closer to thematic. I would say like thematic, like the theme for us is like diverse founders. We know the diverse market better than any other investor, in my opinion. Right now within that diverse market, like yes, we're opportunistic, but like there are like five sectors that we know really well, right? And, and part of it is like, obviously with COVID, like e-commerce, everybody started to like look into this trend more, right? With Coinbase, everybody accelerated crypto. Right. And so like, obviously, like we've rode those trends and we're starting to dig deeper. But I do think like coming from private equity, I think thematic gets thrown around a lot in venture when it's not truly thematic, in my opinion. But I think it's also just because I have a higher bar of what it means to be a thematic investor. Like, you know, you go to like a hedge fund or you go to a large PE fund, like a TBG, KKR. I mean, you're talking like years of like diligence and research, like prove these thematic things because like you're doing majority controlled investments with hundred million dollar checks. And so like, I do think there are certain industries in venture like fintech, biotech, crypto, like where people are like truly thematic and they only focus on one. I think for the majority of other industries, like you're loosely thematic, but if you walked into a room for hedge fund or private equity, they'd probably eat your lunch because like they're just doing, they're doing diligence and themes at like a much deeper research level than like most five person funds can do. I mean, people have like dozens of people in India or other countries, like doing research on trends and doing statistical analysis. Like, I think like for me, like, I think it's thrown around a lot in venture, but like coming from PE, I just don't think most VC investors are truly thematic, like the way late stage thematic would like consider it. But it's, it's also like great for, for fundraising, right? Because like a part of the bias, you know, in terms of their emerging manager bias, part of the bias is that like thematic specialized investors are better. And like Cambridge Associates actually did a research report on this across all their funds. And they statistically didn't find any difference in returns between their agnostic managers and their thematic managers. There's an inherent bias in the industry that like being thematic makes you smarter. I think that's true in certain verticals. Like we would never do a biotech investment, right? I think it's more true later stage. But I think the earlier stage you are, like it's ultimately like you have to bet on like great founders and big markets. And I think part of it is like markets are evolving so quickly, like whether it's the creator economy, Gen Z, you know, like the market's evolving so quickly. There's no way like you're a true thematic, like creator economy investor. Maybe a few people were on it like four or five years ago, but I would like bet 99% of people who are like, oh, like we're, you know, we love creators. We're Gen Z, we're deep in it. Like, yeah, you've been deep in it for a year. And like you're, you know, you're following like a future, like it's not true, like thematic investing. Yeah, I remember Paul saying, in his opinion, he was saying that almost if you get too thematic, right, and you get too locked in, you've almost already missed it in some ways. Because, for example, like Google searchable, and it's like uh, already pretty big on Google, like you might have already missed that trend. So instead, like, let the entrepreneur really bring you the insight that they're seeing and really try to understand it and then go about and do your diligence and seeing and make a decision based on what you believe in what the entrepreneur is building. The beauty of investing, and I tweet about this, is like, it doesn't really matter. Like, ultimately, you can do whatever you want, right? People are making tons of money doing thematic, generalist, multi-stage, seed stage only. I'm going to stay $75 million fund. I'm going to grow to $100 million, billion fund. Like, 
people are making money across all these spectrums. I think everybody's trying to figure out like who's right and who's wrong. And it's like everybody's right and everybody's wrong. Like there's people on both sides losing a ton of money and there's people on both sides making a ton of money. I think like there's no right model. And you know, we think about this all the time, especially when we're fundraising of like, okay, do we keep a more concentrated portfolio? Fund one was 30 investments, fund two is going to be 45. And like we got a lot of pushback from some LPs and we're like, hey, like, We've spoken to a lot of managers who have 50, 60 investments, whether it's first round, lower hippo, others like who've made a lot of money. And we've spoken to a lot of people like Jazz Ventures who have 15 investments who've made a lot of money, right? Like this is like where we ultimately got comfortable with and why we believe this model. But like, there's no right or wrong model. I can show you something on the reverse side anytime you, you, you bring something up. With all this being said, there's not right one model. What to you makes a good investor? Like when you look at, when you think about yourself, when you think about your peers that you respect, when you think about also hiring, what do you think really actually captures and makes a good investor or someone that that could be a good investor? Yeah, I mean, I think decision-making is most important because the outcome is irrelevant. I love Annie Duke's book on thinking in bets. So I think decision-making is really important. So I'm, I'm looking for people who can create like scalable processes generally. I think people, it's like a low bar in venture for whatever reason. Like people who are just like, like view founders as humans. I hear a lot of positive feedback loops from founders about that. Like whether it's birthday stuff or you had a kid or somebody died, like all these things, like your personal life impacts your professional life. I think we can like lose sight because so many of us are doing volume, but we all have 30 companies and you're stacking funds and like people become numbers. But like your founders are humans. One of our companies exited last year. And like when you have that conversation, like, hey, we don't think you're going to be a unicorn. This is a lot of money for you. Like, we, it doesn't really matter for us if you're a 2X or a 4X. It has no impact on our fund, right? But like, it does matter for your life. Like, in having that frame conversation, like, in making a safe landing for your founders, like, all those like little nuances, I think a lot of founders like appreciate because it's so rare in the industry because it does become such a quantitative like numbers game. I think a lot of the best like board members that I've sat on boards with or the best founders I've spoken to are just like, like these are people who I can relate to and who care about me and reach out. And, you know, I follow all of my founders on Instagram and Twitter. Like I know what's going on in their life. And like, that's really important to me. I don't care. Like if you make me money in 10 years, if I didn't enjoy the 10 years along the way, like, and you IPO and we're like all excited, like who cares? Like, you know, that's just like my personal perspective is like, if you don't enjoy the 10 years versus that, like the one hour that you, you ring the bell in the New York Stock Exchange, like it's not worth it. Right. And so I'm always just trying to really figure out like, how do I build those bonds? And like, regardless of what happens, like, you know, we're going to have good relationships and like we will learn together. I think the best investors just want to learn and build together, regardless of if things go right or go wrong. Um, and that's like what I've heard from a lot of founders. I do think investor versus fund manager is two different perspectives. Like, being a good investor and seeing a deck and investing is very different from building a fund, raising capital, hiring people, building an institutional platform. I think a lot of people underestimate those differences. Like when we hire people who we think are going to be partner track, like we're looking for people who we think not only are you a good investor, which to me is the easier part of the job, but like can you actually like build the firm and like help us like scale these processes to be a multi-billion dollar fund? Because that's that's really hard and it's a completely different skill set. It's a much higher, much easier to hire investors than to hire like firm building partners. I also want to reserve some time to talk about Miami. I know you recently removed there the past couple of months and have been tweeting about how I saw at least one of your tweets about how you believe that this venture ecosystem, tech ecosystem in Miami is going to be here for the long term and for the long run. First of all, what has been the ventures been seen been like? And what are your maybe first impressions? Yes, I've been here two months now as of this weekend. 
I mean, the, the biggest impression of me is like how open the community is. Like I've met, I mean, it's been a long two months. Like I've met, I've met dozens and dozens of people. I think that, you know, it's unique where like you go to an event and somebody's like, Hey, like I'm having a, you know, a get together at my house, like a mansion house, like come through or I'm having something on my boat or like, I'm coming like that, like, you know, in New York, like that doesn't happen to that level. Like you don't go to an event and somebody's like, come to my house in the Hamptons in two days. It's very rare, right? It's much more exclusionary um, type of group. And you got to kind of build your way into those communities in New York. And though like I, in New York is very open. I love New York. I think that level, like whether it's the Southern culture, whether it's the Latin culture, there's definitely much more of like an inviting community here in Miami. Like and I, it's enabled me to meet so many people so quickly. I think also to that point, even though it's a large city, within the tech and VC scene, like there's these clear nodes of people that like know everybody. Right. And there's kind of like four areas in Miami, Rico, Wynwood, South Beach, Coral Gables, like where most of like the VC tech scene is um, that's emerging and new. And so like each of those community kind of has like a few people that like knows everybody in those communities. And so I think because you're like in a, a smaller ecosystem, unlike New York or San Francisco, like you can get to know the ecosystem really quickly. I think that's like been really awesome. Like it's, it's awesome to to be a fish in like this new pond and, or ocean that's growing because you just know people and it's like, oh, but like we're expanding and we're going into new markets and like the city is growing. And like, I, I have like so many friends who are moving down here in September um, after kind of like the hurricane season. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited for it. It's been a lot of fun. I think a lot more people are going to move here. I think people come here for the taxes and weather. I think people stay for, for the community and lifestyle. Honestly, it's like business school. I haven't felt this way since first semester of business school where it was just like, like you couldn't say no to anything, but like there were so many events you had to say no, or like you just meet people and like, oh like, yeah, like you know we're hosting this party because nobody, everybody's new and excited, and like that's how Miami is right now. Everybody's new and excited. There's people who've been here. And I think one thing is different. Even the people who had been here for a while, there weren't a lot of people like who were like them to some extent. Like there weren't a lot of like, hey, we're like super techie, right? And so now that like more New Yorkers, LA and S, the people have moved down here. Like even the ones who already made it, who were rich and have these homes or like, hey, like just come over because like I've yearned for this for so many years because I've been the only one or I've been one of few in Miami. And now it's like there's dozens of you from other ecosystems who are like me, who I want to invite over. And I think that's like also made it unique is like it's not like the Hamptons where like you've had other people around you for decades of a similar caliber. Like now it's like, no, like, you know, I've, I've heard this from a couple of people in Miami, like like it's really exciting to see a lot of like New Yorkers and SF people move here um, and like kind of like just like raise the bar of the city. How do you think about new entrepreneurial hubs that are kind of rising across the U.S., um, especially due to with now you're able to um, obviously meet with founders a lot easier on Zoom. That's become a lot more acceptable. Has this made also for sourcing purposes um, a lot easier? Yeah, I mean, we were already this even before COVID. So I'd say... Probably 55% of our portfolio is New York, LA, San Francisco. The rest is all over, right? We've got three in Boston, two in DC, two in Chicago, one investment in like Indianapolis, Denver, Atlanta, et cetera. So like we've always kind of like had this balance of like 60-40, I would say coastal, non-coastal. We don't have one in Miami yet. Um, I'm hoping to get one. Um, it's definitely one of my goals for this year. Our team is based in six cities. Like we're in DC, New York, Cleveland, London. LA and Miami right now. And it's like, we have like a view of like, this is the future. Let people work where they want to work, get your work done. I don't really care where you do it. And similarly, like we want to be where founders are, right? And so like, we're trying to also like, hey, if you're, you know, Brandon, one of our partners, he's from Cleveland. Like, like I told him we had our media review last week. 
like you need to own the Midwest, like Columbus, Detroit, Indianapolis, Chicago, like any diverse founder coming out of those four cities, like you should know, right? And so it's like, it gives us more boots on the ground. That's kind of where we're going. Like we were doing that before COVID. We're accelerating that post COVID. We're letting all the firm work wherever they want to work. And we're going to continue to try to like find diverse founders where they are. I think where they are, you know, traditionally had never been the Valley. We have two companies in San Francisco. So like traditionally, none of, most of our companies were never based in SF. Like LA is actually a better market for us from an investing perspective. Um, and so I think that's only going to continue to accelerate on a go forward basis. Why is LA a better market than San Francisco for you? Uh, I think it's just more diverse, right? I mean, it's, there's just a more diverse population. It's a massive city. And I think also from like a industry perspective, it's more diverse. It's not just tech. Obviously, entertainment is big there, but like there's a lot of other diverse industries as well. And so I think like just like even in Miami, like 50% of people in Miami weren't born in the US. 60% of people in Miami are Black or Latino, right? And so you have these cities similar for Atlanta, for New York, for Baltimore. And so they're just more diverse cities. So for us, particularly given our strategy, there's just more diverse talent. I think part of it going back to the fund model, like giving our first fund of 40 million, like we couldn't, you know, we typically weren't investing in 15 to 20 million post YC companies. Like the math just didn't work for us, right? And so I think part of it also is just like there wasn't this like premium of you being a San Francisco company. Uh, and that made it really hard for, for us to do deals. And some people, you know, don't care about ownership. We do. And so like because we are ownership focused, like SF was just traditionally been really hard. There's so much capital there. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know I've had fund managers on the show that avoid San Francisco at all costs um, just because it's, the premiums you pay are, in some levels, kind of absurd. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's really, really unbelievable. It is. What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? I would say it's, I mean, particularly in this market, it's becoming more and more competitive. And not in a way where it's like, oh, I'm, I can't compete, but in a way where like people are just less open, right? Like you're not sharing deals as much because now it's like, there's only going to be one other fund that gets into a round, right? If, if even if that, like if Andreessen does a seed deal, it's Prorata and Andreessen, right? And maybe somebody else like for another fund. And so I think as venture gets more competitive, like you lose that commodity, which is really what's fun. Like the biggest differentiator for private equity and, and PE or venture, obviously, besides like getting on the ground with founders is like, like you get to talk to people all the time. Like when you're in private equity, like you're not like talking to other PE funds. Like you may talk to your friends, like, hey, what deals are you doing? But like it's majority control. It's much bigger checks. There's much more like at stake. Like the beauty of venture capital is like, you need other people for your deals to work. Like if you're a seed investor, you need series A investors. If you're a seed investor, you typically need one or two other funds plus angels for a round to get done or to have other people around the table to provide value add. It's like venture is a community driven investment vehicle, um, which is really rare in the investing space. And so I think the more and more like competitive it gets where people feel like they can be less of a community, I think the more you get to this like stuck up private equity world where like you're just not going to have as much fun. And it's like, my hope is that like we don't continue to move like towards that. Like we, we're very much community. I don't be people's competition. Either we win or we don't. Like, I think it just means we have to get better. I don't want people to kind of get in this thing where it's like, I don't share deals with people. We're not talking because like we're scared. Like, you know, you may take it from us. Uh, and so a lot of funds that we're really close with, like we kind of have like a verbal agreement. If we share the deal with them, like, and we're both kind of bidding for whoever sourced the deal, like whoever the other person wins, like you'll pull them in, right? And so it makes it a little bit more open. Like, hey, like you won the term sheet, congrats. I shared it with you to get feedback. But like, if there's room, like I want to be that fun. Sometimes there's not room. That's just a reality. But like more of that kind of relationship on a go forward basis. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I don't read a lot of books. (laughs) 
Thinking in bets definitely was one professionally. I'd say the other one was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which I read as a kid. Personally, I'm trying to think of a book. I'd probably say Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers. I'm a huge data geek. I think data drives decisions. And so I think seeing the data just like helps to confirm, which is what I really believe that like you never get to where you are on your own, right? And one of my biggest like pet peeves is like people who think they are successful because of themselves. And so I think like Outliers is just one of those books where I could just like maybe double down on like who are the people who helped me get here. How can I help others? Like having this view of like, hey, like successful people are only successful because of like their environment and people, the community around them. And like, it was just like tons of data around like whether it was Bill Gates or the band, I forget, the Beatles, et cetera, like on like why they were as successful as they were. I think that to me was just like super fascinating and eye-opening. And I actually wrote my Harvard Business School uh, essay on outliers. Wow, that's amazing. You might be the first person to actually mention outliers too. So I'm really excited to add that to the uh, book list. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I think it's pretty simple. I think it's just be you. I think oftentimes people reach out to me, whether it's for business school or whatever it is. And I'm just like, I'll review your essay. I don't want like, sometimes people ask it like, hey, can I see your essay to like write my essay? And I know that's going to skew their perspective. So I always say, write your essay and I'll give you my feedback. Right? I think too many people try to replicate like, oh, because I got an HBS, like my essay is perfect. Like, and if you replicate it, like you'll get in. That's just not the case. Um, and the same is true for founders, like getting the venture. Like, don't try to replicate one of our best performing, you know, one of his pet peeves is he hates VCs who believe in truisms. Like, because they had a unicorn, like they think that like this unicorn is the replicate model for them. He's like, that's not true. It's you're, you're falsifying like what you had a past experience to try to put that onto my experience. And like, obviously you can take things, what you've learned from like other unicorns you've seen over time, but like there's still a unique experiences, unique journeys for every founder, every startup and every point in time, like starting a diversity focused fund today versus 10 years ago, completely different. Starting an e-commerce focused fund today versus 10 years ago, completely different. Right. And so I think you just have to be aware of it. It doesn't mean like don't take any learnings from like what you've done, but like don't like try to just replicate what you've seen and like say that because this is successful, like this is gonna work. And I think a lot of the best founders and the best managers hate that. I personally hate it. Like I like advice from LPs, but like if I go against your advice, like don't think it means I haven't like taken it in. Like I've decided like this is what I'm gonna do for my path, but it doesn't mean that like I don't respect like what you've seen from like successful other managers, you know, in the past. What are your thoughts about like pattern matching? Like, do you kind of believe in it or not really? I believe in it to some extent. There's a, um, I forget the author's name, but he wrote a book on, on like he followed 350 unicorns and had all this data on it. Super fascinating. And it was like, you know, the average, the average age of a, a unicorn founder, like they started 15 years after college and all these things. And so I think part of it, yes, like I think there are things to look out for. I think part of it for me, given what we're focused on, I can't use past data because diverse founders weren't included in past data, right? And so I think part of it is like, okay, like how do I, yes, like learn from what like past unicorns have, which typically is two-time founders or more like great unicorns or people who are 10 years plus out of college, even though people think founders are young, the average founder is 35. Like how do I like take that input in data, but also like add like this component that wasn't in data, similar to like any AI tool where like you can't read black faces or you can't read black hands, like like I can't use that past data because it's not fully incorporated. And so I try to balance it. I don't think it like means I exclude it, but it's like, hey, I, I have that lens, but then like I need to add another lens that hasn't been used in this data on a go-forward basis. And like that's like what I try to think through. It's never perfect, but it's more of like just being open to both sides and understand, like, hey, yes, like, you know, Harvard has the most unicorns of any school and Stanford's number two, and then it's like a long shot for the next schools. 
like that doesn't mean that you only invest in Harvard Stanford students. And does that mean I'm willing to like give a, a higher valuation for those founders because like there's more upside? Like I don't know, but like it's just like how do you take that into your funnel and assess it? And like those are things I'm thinking through. Those are really good points. My final question to you is what is the best piece of advice that you've received that you maybe find yourself saying over and over again? By far, my life slogan has been work hard, play harder, which my dad told me when I was in middle school, I think, or fifth grade. That's just like my philosophy. It's the philosophy of the firm. I just don't think, I think we have a, like, we work a lot, but like, what's the point of working if you don't play? And I think too many people get burned out. I'm very conscious of this for my founders. Like, I try to like, I ask them, like, when's your last vacation? It's just really important. And so I think the, the work hard, play harder mentality for me has been a slogan and focus for my life. Like I work a lot, but like I always find ways to take trips, spend time with my wife, call my family. You know, I was home for seven months during COVID, like spending time. I didn't work a single Friday from Memorial Day to Labor Day. I got to my grandfather every Friday last summer after he had a brain surgery. And like, I would never take that back, right? I think, and especially in venture, like there's always deals. There's always FOMO. One of my HBS professors, Jeff Dusking, who's a, a partner at Flybridge, I think he has a really good model around it. It's like, you're always going to miss something, right? And you have to get to a point like where you're comfortable missing something. I remember we had a deal last August, which was a hot deal. We always close the office the final two weeks of August and the final two weeks of December. And I told the founder like, hey, like you're closing. It was like the week before Labor Day. I can't get an investment committee for my team, right? It's just not going to happen. And it's like, you know, I got to pass on the deal. And it's just like that belief of like, hey, like it may make us a lot of money, but like I'm not going to have my team come off vacation because like this deal I'm, I'm afraid of missing. And you kind of just at some point got to just cut it off. I think a lot of people don't do that. I think we do a really good job of it. And it's always been a, a huge focus for me because I just don't think making money, getting IPOs like really matters if you didn't enjoy the journey, right? And I think if anything taught us last year with COVID, like life is super short. And you just don't know when it's going to end. And I think, you know, you have to count your blessings. I think last year for me, like probably heightened it even more. And I think this summer, they're calling it the YOLO summer. Like people are like in that phase of like, like this is, <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> Those are really good points. Thanks for sharing as well. Like maybe one of your biggest learnings from COVID, that life is short. We all need to cherish it. And the end result, it doesn't matter if you're not really enjoying the journey along the way. So make sure you do that. Henri, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and chatting with me. Oh man, thanks for having me, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Henri. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at HPierreJacques. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 